a radio show that confesses Christ without confusing the law and the gospel. A radio show that takes Scripture seriously without taking ourselves so seriously. You're listening to Table Talk Radio. I, I like how he ran in the room thinking that you accidentally articulated baptism incorrectly. Like, wait a minute, you're mistaken. He said to me, he said, you sound like a heretic. Right, yeah. It wasn't like, boy, they must be playing a game where they're articulating someone else's belief. It was, I think Pastor Wolfmiller is off his rocker. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a little bit disturbed that you think that I would actually teach that about baptism, Pastor And it's so, 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 so deserved to be crunched. I mean, mega crunch. <laughs> so, uh, if you guys would put mega, the mega crunch. crunch on the song, that would be awesome. <laughs> Keep uh, preaching the word, pastors. Keep it mediocre, mediocre and hilarious. You're listening to Table Talk Radio, where the only way it can get worse is if you add video. <laughs> <laughs> I miss the days of Pastor Flammy listening in on on us to see if I'm saying something heretical. He had, he had in the next office over, I think, the buzzer from the game Taboo, and every Man. every time you would say, eh, wrong. Eh. <laughs> Did I ever tell you <laughs> this is the times I tried to Get Pastor Flammy to have a flashback to the war zone? Because you know he did two oh, tours right, in Iraq. Right, 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 right. So one time I got one of those air horns and I put it under his chair so it would go off when he sat down on it. <laughs> and he go and I'm watching, you know, around the corner, ho, 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 you know, like I'm in high school. And he sits down on it and he goes, and he looks at me, and he sits and he stands back up. Like, didn't even He is cool, calm, and collected. So then I'm, you know, an hour later, I'm working in my office, and he comes in there and just walks in the door and goes, and I fall off my chair. <laughs> it was terrible. I thought anyway. you were going to say he, like, did some kind of move and put you in a chokehold in, like, 0. 0.3 seconds or something. Anytime I was trying to scare him, I was always out of arm's reach. <laughs> Good plan. Good plan. Uh, the, uh, today, we're going to do Name That Theologian and Ten Commandments in the News and Buzzwords, Holy Week. Table Talk Radio. That's the plan. What's not to love except for everything you just said? So <laughs> yes, let's right. let's let's start with buzzwords. Uh, do you have a buzzword, Pastor? Nope. I have a buzzword game for you. I'd like you to pick a number between one and seven hundred. Uh, hey, I have that book. I think. Uh, hey, I think the title goes on. Was that a discount copy? Look at that. The title cut off at the top. It did. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with 497. This I love this book. Speaking of Flammy, this is the book that I found. He would always quote the dead Orthodox Lutheran fathers. Like he's quoting, quoting Halots and Brents and all these guys. I'm like, how do you know all this stuff? And he wouldn't tell me. He just looked real coy. Like he. <laughs> and so I snuck into his office one day and I found this book on his shelf and I said, it wasn't this. It's the old one. It's out of so I republished it. It has all the secrets. So I figured out his his thing. Ah, okay. This is great. This is uh, this. So it talks about uh, theology from all the Orthodox Fathers thing. You can download it for free at wolfmuller.co slash books or whatever wherever that is. This is this page is talking about the mystical union. The mystical union. Now we talk about three unions, at least in theology. The personal union, which is the union of the two natures in Christ. The sacramental union, that's the union of Jesus' body and blood with the bread and the wine. 
and then the mystical union, which is the union of the believer to Jesus. So here it quotes Quinstadt, that dead Orthodox Lutheran guy, who says, The mystical union does not consist merely in the harmony and tempering of the affections, as when the soul of Jonathan is said to be united with David, 1 Samuel 8, but in a true, real, literal, and most intimate union. For Christ, John 17, 21 uses the phrase, to be in someone, which implies the real presence of a thing, which is said to be in, not figuratively, as the, a lover in the beloved. The mystical union does not consist alone in the gracious operation of the Holy Spirit in believers. For when Christ says, John 14, 23, I and my Father, etc., and verse 16, the Holy Spirit, etc., these are not names of operations, but persons. And it is entirely wanton to convert such emphatic words expressing a reality by which the mystical union is described into mere energetic expressions. For example, to come, to be sent into the heart, to dwell, to remain, to live in anyone. For these are personal properties and not attributes of operations. Hmm. Hmm. So that's saying that the true Jesus and also the Father and Spirit dwell in the Christian. That's the mystical union. We don't talk enough about the mystical union, probably. Hmm. It's, it's so mystical. I mean, we just don't... All right, my theological buzzword for you is uh, spotless. Oh, wow. Which is kind of a word that doesn't need much defining, but we'll put it into a theological context. I mean, like when uh, when you send your kids out to wash your car, which you do all the time, I know, you right. say, I want that thing spotless, right? Mm. <laughs> Uh, but in the theological contents, co context, this uh, reminds us of that sacrifice that was required. Um, so that, so here, here's the thing. Yeah, you you, you bring a, an, a lamb to be sacrificed, and let's say you have this this uh, this lamb who wouldn't bring much market value anyway. He's spotted. He's um, maybe has has a broken leg, you know, you'd probably take him out behind the woodshed anyway, but hey, I have to sacrifice one anyway. You're the one. Uh, but that's not what the Lord uh, desires. The Lord desires uh, the best um, so that we would give our best as a sacrifice unto the Lord. And so then this uh, points forward to Jesus, who is our spotless lamb. Uh, and that is to say that he is without sin. He is perfect in every way, lived under the law in perfection and thought, word, and deed, and now is the sacrifice for us. And so our theological buzzword comes to us from uh, Paul Gerhardt in A Lamb Goes Uncomplaining Forth. That's what I was just thinking about, that particular <laughs> hymn. You want to hear about you it? should have played What's That Hymn? Oh, I should have. Okay. A lamb goes uncomplaining forth. There's the giveaway. The guilt of sinners bearing and laden with the sins of earth, none else the burden sharing. Goes patient on, grows weak and faint to slaughter led without complaint that spotless life to offer. He bears the stripes, the wounds, the lies, the mockery, and yet replies, all this I gladly suffer. Hmm. You have the hymn there too? Mm-hmm. But I have it in the TLH. Listen oh, to the last interesting. line. That spotless life to offer bears shame and stripes and wounds and death, anguish and mockery, and saith, willing all this I suffer. Hmm. Yeah, even better. Yeah. So. Uh, here's the second. I mean, this whole stanza's, uh, or this whole hymn's great because it, it tells like this, this kind of story of 
of uh, this relationship between uh, the Father and the Son. So it goes on, it says, uh, The Lamb is Christ, the soul's great friend, the Lamb of God, our Savior, whom God the Father chose to send to gain for us his favor. Go forth, my son, the Father said, and free my children from their dread of guilt and condemnation. The wrath and stripes are hard to bear, but by your passion they will share the fruit of your salvation. Is that pretty close? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the next one, yes, Father, yes, uh, most willingly, I'll bear what you command me. My will conforms to your decree. I'll do what you have asked me. A wondrous love, what have you done? The Father offers up his Son, desiring our salvation. O love, how strong you are to save. You lay the one in to the grave and built the earth's foundation. Uh, who built the earth's foundation. So here you have the one who laid the foundation of the earth now laying in the rock of stone in the earth. Isn't that something? That is, there is a line in here that's missing in that one. It, right towards the end it says, The Father offers up his Son, the Son content descendeth. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. Just not... Yeah. That, but I love this idea. I mean, Gerhard does it. Luther does this. The, old, the fathers will do this. Uh, to, you have this conversation back and forth between the Father and the Son, the Father mm-hmm. and the Son, which is the key to the whole Bible, this conversation between the Father and the Son. You're my Son, I've begotten you. Sit here at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This inner Trinitarian conversation. And this, this hymn is a marvelous hymn. I did a whole, we, one time we did a midweek series, one verse a week on this, mm. and I preached on each of the verses. It's because there's so much theology here, but this... All the lamb theology, all the sacrifice theology, every ounce of blood from the Old Testament is gathered up into the death of Jesus, and it preached. It was it's, it was all preaching this great last sacrifice. So, hmm. oh, let's get the last one in. Far be it from me to leave the last stanza out. <laughs> Lord, when your glory I shall see and taste your kingdom's pleasure, your blood my royal robe shall be, my joy beyond all measure. When I appear before your throne, your righteous shall be your righteousness shall be my crown. With these, I need not hide me. Uh, uh, sorry, and there in garments richly wrought, as your own bride shall shall we be brought to stand in joy beside you. It's great. Jesus is stripped on the cross. You know, all he's got is he's just got his blood and his crown, and it says. Those your the, the your wounds are our glorious dress hmm. that clothe us to stand before you as your bride in eternity. Yeah, it's it is stunning. Yeah, Whew. Ah. spotless. That's well, a good buzzword. Uh, okay, so uh, when we get back from the break, <laughs> what <laughs> we wanted to you know give a whole segment just for the buzzwords, you know, sure, just in why case. Not. Why not? Uh, but after this, we're going to do some Ten Commandments of the News, and then uh, name that theologian. Uh, we're uh, recording here Wednesday of Holy Week, so uh, joy for us to to ponder these things as we prepare uh, for our Lord's Passion and look forward to the resurrection on Easter Sunday, uh, remembering the. Uh, justification uh, of of uh, that we are justified before Him uh, on account of His death and resurrection. So, more from Table Talk Radio right after this. Mm-hmm. 
This is the hymn of the day if for you're Holy, not easily embarrassed. Holy Wednesday. Tell yep. your friends about Table Talk Radio. The Sunday drive home grappling with the text on the Theo vlog. These are some of the playlists on the YouTube channel. Visit YouTube slash Wolfmuller1. Check it out there. Okay. That's how readiest I am. We got all these emails like, why do you guys actually take breaks? Is uh, there any radio station that... No. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It? Oh, yeah. Um, there's uh, the EIB. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We're 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 trying to get in and in Russia's old spot. Man, oh man, I was gonna tune in to see what's going on with the Rush Limbaugh show lately. I don't actually. I'm not sure either. You might hear us. I don't know. I mean, we, they might have picked us up. I just we might have to extend it. Could you do? Could you do three hours a day? With my half my orthodoxy type <laughs> behind my back. <laughs> not a problem. That uh, guy was great for all his shortcomings. Yeah, he was great. Yeah, at radio, he's probably the reason why, you know, our show has so much success <laughs> on the AM band. <laughs> All right, we're gonna do some Ten Commandments in the news. I have a couple articles here for you, Pastor. All right, you got a screen share? Oh, you bet! You bet I am. Uh, so this one comes from Slate. As I work on getting on the screen. Um, I, I, Slate, I read Slate all the time. I know Slate. you do. I know you do. I actually first heard about it from um, Matt Walsh over at the Daily Wire. Oh, yeah? Um, but I thought it was something worth thinking about. I mean, so so obviously he'll talk about it on more of a uh, social level, political level. But I thought it'd be interesting to talk about um, on a uh, theological level. And this is a uh, kind of a right in for advice kind of a thing. So this is maybe a Ten Commandments in the News is a bit of a stretch, but this is how it goes, uh, written by someone who calls himself suddenly the breadwinner. It says, I'm a new father to a beautiful 10-month-old girl. My wife's company has a generous maternity leave policy, and she has been at home with our daughter since the birth and is scheduled to go back to work just after her first birthday in January. She recently told me she doesn't want to go back to her job and would like to be a stay-at-home parent instead. I asked her why, and she said she enjoys being the mother too much, being a mother too much to leave our daughter to go back to work when she doesn't need to. This is a departure from our plans before the baby was born. She has a good job that she has enjoyed uh, before going on leave, and she has always been adamant that she wanted to continue working even after becoming a mom. When, uh, sorry, we met when we worked at the same company many years ago, and one of the things that I was most attracted to was her ambition and tenacity. It's really surprising to hear that her career isn't that important to her anymore. <laughs> Honestly, honestly, I don't want her to quit her job. She earns about the same as I do, and while we could make ends meet on my income alone, it would impact our ability to save, and we'd have to we'd need to give up one of our cars and cut way back on extras that make life more enjoyable. I also just don't want to be a I also just don't want a stay-at-home wife. I really admired my wife for her work ethic. And I want to set a good example for our daughter, too. Seeing her give up like this is really disappointing. I, this, this is, I gently asked her if she thought her change in attitude could be related to a possible mental health issue or postpartum depression. But she didn't take that well. <laughs> <Shock>. <laughs> 
<laughs> are you are you sure you're not just crazy? <laughs> I wonder why they didn't go over well. She says she only cares about our daughter, and that's where all her energy needs to go right now. And that if I love her, I will let uh, her do this. I do love my wife, and I'm not interested in divorce. But I'm seeing a whole new side of her that I just don't like or admire. What should I do? Oh my goodness. Are you dumbfounded? <laughs> What's the answer say? Oh, I don't know. I mean, okay. I mean, I understand that this is a jarring about face from your wife's past position on working. I'm not discounting the financial consequences of giving up nearly half the family income or the great satisfaction many people draw from their careers. I hope that your wife takes the opportunity to talk this through with someone she needs or wants to talk to before making a decision. Of course, there could be other factors at play, like postpartum anxiety, uh, and it would be hard for her and for all of you if she wound up regretting this choice later. Yeah, if you want to take care of your child, it must be a mental issue. That's... I was, I was listening to some, um, I was listening to issues etc. This morning, driving around, and they they were talking about President Biden's language on the pay equality today or yesterday was like pay equality day or something like this, and and so it's apparently still the case that men and women don't make the same amount of money in the same careers. But there's so many reasons for that. It's not like they're, one is getting paid less, but it just turns out that women work less because they, for example, have maternity leave. They, for example, prioritize the family more than men do. They also don't work these crazy, dangerous jobs uh, that guys will get all the time. And so there's there's a gap in these things because it, it makes it like this, like this um, mom here who re recognizes... The thing that every mom knows but is ashamed to admit, and that is that babies are more important than jobs. Family is more important than than career. And it's women are right about that. <laughs> How in the world did feminism get hijacked by the man's idea? Do you remember that G.K. Chesterton talks about this when he's writing about uh, women's suffrage? I don't want to... this. I mean, this... It's this great thing, though. I just don't want to go back to women's suffrage, but this idea where he says that it was always a joke. The men, the the women were always saying the mo most important part of life is here in the home, and the men were saying no, no, no. The most important part of life is here in this in the public square. So I got to go out to the bar and smoke cigars and drink beer and sort out the politics. And everybody knew that the women were right. <laughs> And that the men were wrong, so that the, the, that voting, which, which we the men were always acting like it's the most important thing, never was. The politics is never; it's always been the family that's the most important thing. So Chesterton says. So imagine our surprise when the women showed up with cigars at the pub and said, "You guys are right. <laughs> we want in on the conversation." And we're like, "Wait, you guys remember we're joking? <laughs> of course, the family's the most important part of of human life." And of, and of course, this desire to be home. Now, the Lord ha has arranged it, I think, to where this sort of inward-looking instinct is especially natural for, for women and for moms. And that that instinct is awakened whenever a woman sees a baby, <laughs> and most especially when a woman has a baby, 
the instinct for men is outside the house, out into the field and farm and so forth, battlefield and whatever. And so we we're we're always pulling back. We're always pulling kind of each other into these realms. But the idea that the thing that matters most is our work and our career, but rather than our family, I mean, is a lie. That's well said. In in this particular case. It wasn't even the work. It was the luxuries of life, having two cars. And yeah, I mean, I wonder if this man would be ashamed to read this when his, was it a daughter? Did it say? Let's go back and look. Baby. I think it, I don't remember. Yeah, girl. So when his daughter is 18 and would would read this to her, I wonder if he would be ashamed. Because he's, he's more or less saying, uh, I would rather, um, I would rather have, two cars and have the luxuries of life that make life more enjoyable than for you to have your mother taking care of you at all times. I, I've been, you too, you have also been at a lot of deathbeds. I've been at a lot of deathbeds and I've never ever heard someone regret that they didn't work enough. <laughs> right. Right. But they, I've never heard someone regret only that they didn't make more. enough money. Yeah. Right. Never. Always, there's always regret at the deathbed, mm-hmm. uh, and it's always time with your family. Always. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. I wish I would have said and done these things with the people I love more. Mm-hmm. And that there's some wisdom in that, 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 that age and, well, age clarifies our priorities. Yeah. I mean, the, the other thing that I found surprising by this letter was that if you admired your your wife's work ethic and tenacity, why would you not see that translate to the role as mother? Like that, those are good qualities. I, I mean, I agree with that, that being attractive, but all the better for a mother who's, who has a hard work ethic and tenacity. Right? I mean, that's almost a prerequisite to be, to becoming a mother, I think. I know. <laughs> I know. I mean, be, the, the work around the home is hard, and it never stops. You can never clock out, and it it is a we're in a bad situation where the work at home, which nobody's writing a paycheck for, mm-hmm. is despised. That our own is, I suppose, it's one of the dangers of capitalism run amok. Is that the only thing that's valuable? Is is the things that you can put a dollar value on and that is really bad because the the work and the care that that fathers and mothers give to their children is is invaluable but no one's writing a paycheck for it yeah 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 uh however um you know we 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 think about so i i was for our lent services we went through um ephesians and i always like you know, just picking a book and going a chapter through and preaching the whole thing, because um, you kind of really see the flow of where the writer is going. And uh, in Ephesians, you know, you have this this great passage um, in uh, chapter five where you um, you know that we would walk in in light and not in darkness. And then and then at the end of five, it goes into husbands and wives, and the top of six, it goes into uh, parents and children, and then you know slaves. And masters, and it points us to our vocations. And I was talking about how, you know, we don't think those are our good works. We want the, we want to, you know, start a new hospital or whatever to change the world. But think about how the world would be different if fathers simply stayed in the homes and uh, provided and cared for their children. 
that that is what's really going to change the world. We need to take a break. Right back. persevering listeners in radio you're listening to table talk radio the daily bible meditation blog is at rightly divided bible.wordpress.com where three chapters of the bible are considered each day check it out boom 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 All right, so I think we've established from the fourth commandment that it is a good thing. Oh, yeah, Ten Commandments in the news. Yeah, that's the game. Do you want to run, run through the Ten Commandments on that last story? Fourth commandment, family, sixth commandment, husband and wife, babies. Seventh commandment, economic situation. Uh, this has to do with the order of creation, too. It's going to get weirder and weirder as the... Um, as our culture gets this strange gender amnesia, you know, and forgets that there's differences between men and women, you gender know? amnesia. I like that. And so we're not supposed to notice if a if a man is a man and a woman is a woman and all that sort of stuff. We were going to Andrew's track meet the other day, and I said, "Any guys running in with the girls?" He says, "I don't know, probably, but it there was it didn't happen." But you know, it's weird. It's a weird thing to think about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, these days, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, we, we should how? we should probably say that motherhood is not a mental illness. Does that do we need to go on record in saying that? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Loving your baby is not a result but, of. But there, but there's just something. There's a commentary of our culture in that. I mean, uh, we, because we're so anti-children. I mean, where this started was wherever it came to be the the idea that children are a commodity. They're just, that, that that children are a component. To make my life happy and bring me right. fulfillment. That's it. And right. That's and it. so so now it's like, what you you, you want to stay home and take care of your child? You must be mentally ill. Right. <laughs> so. The child is there for you to, for you to experience your most authentic life or whatever. What crazy? What we gotta? You know, children. There's a lot of good things that peel us out of ourselves, but children are probably the best. You know. You needed I a mean, lot of peeling out of then. You know, I also... <laughs> do you know how the kids get the original sin from the dad? Oh, I, yeah. So I figured out, yeah, I was four. <laughs> so I'm out of original sin just about, just about. <laughs> I just took care of it all in one one shot. <laughs> I, there is something... We carry, and I used to call it NCS, no child syndrome. You know, it's where, like, the couple that's sitting there eating steak and getting three-course meals and, at the restaurant, and, and they're, they're skinny and clean, and they look despisingly at you, you can, <laughs> and they think, when we have children... Yeah. Our children are going to be very well behaved. They're going to eat their vegetables. <laughs> you know, you know when when Mandy takes uh, Lily to the grocery store, um, she has this little tiny toy uh, shopping cart, and so she'll be, you know, Lily's almost going to turn three here in a little bit, but she's pushing around this little toy shopping cart and putting little things in there. And it's funny though the the differing reactions that will be that in the store so some people are like oh that's so cute you know another other people are like why is that child <laughs> walking up and down the aisles <laughs> <It's> so funny 
So yeah, everyone. I mean, it it is a it is kind of a. We, we, I don't know. No child syndrome. I like that. Well, I have another yes. article we should probably get to. Did you have another thought on this? Or you nope. Wanna, okay. Nope. Nope. Good for this lady. Yep. I hope the I hope the guy gets on board. Yep. Here's the next article. It is uh, from Gallup. It says U.S. church membership falls below majority for the first time. Look, there's nobody in that church. <laughs> I know. That one's really empty. <laughs> uh, Dang. Uh, so uh, to, in 2020, 47% of the U.S. adults belong to a church, synagogue, or a mosque. So here's the, here's the chart we can kind of take in. I'm going to read a little bit, lo- little bit lower. But So in, in 1940, 73% of the population... So they were a member of uh, some kind of a church or house of worship, I guess. And now we're in uh, 2020, and it's down to 47%. Okay, got That's that? Low. Yeah. All right, take that in. All right, so here's here's some interesting thing, though. It says, um, decline in membership tied to increase in lack of religious affiliation. The decline in church membership is primarily a function of the increasing number of Americans who express no religious preference. Over the past two decades, the percentage of Americans who did not identify with any religion has grown from 8% in uh, 1998 to 2000 to 13% in 2008, 2010, and well, 21%. Now that's, hold on, now that's not a that huge drop. So 8% to... 8% to 13 and then 13 to 21%. Oh, 13 to 21. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. better. Uh, as would be expected, Americans without a religious preference are highly unlikely to belong to a church. So I don't know. <laughs> Although a small uh, portion, 4% in the uh, 2018 to 2020 data, say they do. That is interesting, actually. Uh, that figure is down from 10%. Uh, given the nearly perfect alignment between not having a religious preference and not belonging to a church, a 13% point increase in no religious affiliation since uh, 1998 to 2000 appears to account for more than half of the 20-point decline in church membership over the same time. All right, so what do you think of uh, these stats, Pastor, that uh, church membership has fallen below 50%? That's interesting because this is so. This is talking about people who say that they are a member of a church, not necessarily. Correct. So, so like seventy nine percent of the people would say that they have a religion, Christian or something else, but forty seven percent of the people say that they go, they have membership in the church. That means thirty two percent. That's a gap. And then they said four percent identify say they have a church, but they don't have a religion, which is strange. So that means 36%, that's a problem. So 36% of people say that they are religious but don't have a church. That's the mo- even more thing. So the idea that you can be religious without being associated with a particular body of believers is, number one, let's just say this first off the bat, it's wrong. You, If you are a Christian, you are part of a church, the church of Jesus, and you have brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not just you and Jesus. It never can be you the, and Jesus. The mystical union. People are... <laughs> Let me mark that down. Can you just interject the buzzword? Yeah, I'll like just, that I'm not even going to put it in a sentence. Yeah, what you said, only my buzzword. <laughs> Your hair looks spotless. <laughs> All right, so, negative uh, 15 uh, points for that. <laughs> So the uh, so there's this, uh, but th- th- there's so there's this wrong idea of I'm spiritual but not religious. I think that's what that means. I mean, th- what we're just seeing is the outworking of that phrase. I'm spiritual, not religious. I'm I have an individual faith, but not a p- 
public faith. I don't belong to any particular group. That, And I would say, you know where we, we're really seeing this also, is in the church, how, I mean, even though, even if people are members of a church, their own individual theological convictions don't match the church. Mm. Even that is starting to grow farther and farther apart. Right. So people are be just becoming less confessional all the way around. Churches are becoming less confessional. Individuals and families are becoming less confessional. There's less conviction um, where there should be. Well, I think so. we I think we saw that probably before others did with, um, you know, close communion, where we assert that where you go to church or where you hold your membership of the church um, is a confession of your faith. So, you know, you're, you have a, someone who comes and you know, normally go to the Methodist church, or usually go to the Catholic church or whatever, and say, well, um, you know, if, if we're not in doctrinal agreement, then we shouldn't be expressing that we have doctrinal agreement by partaking together. And um, that, that was... Uh, miss on a lot of people. Like, I, I'm, yeah, I'm a Christian. It doesn't matter if I don't agree with you. I should be able to come to communion. So that was the first thing. There was a disconnect mm-hmm. in people's minds between what I believe and what church I go to. The other thing that I think, um, I mean, interesting to see what the numbers are in 2021, mm-hmm. because I think um, something that has happened uh, in the minds of a lot of people in as we are in the, still in the midst of and hopefully coming out of this kind of COVID pandemic, um, is what churches have had to resort to is kind of online services. And for some people, that is a sufficient substitute for church. That church is more about kind of a download of information that I can get through um, my church's live stream versus actually being present, That that those are are equal substitutes one or the other. So it'll be interesting to see um, for those churches who have, you know, who have tried to accommodate during the pandemic, if if we'll see those members actually come back and say, well, now now that we're past the pandemic, I want to come back and, and be in church, or, uh, hey, uh, church, will you just continue streaming your services so I don't have to get out of my pajamas? Did I tell you what I did because of my pajama frustration? <laughs> tell me. Tell me tell me more about your pajama frustration. I'm frustrated that people are watching church in their pajamas. <laughs> so we started doing just this week, we started doing this home service and it's me standing in the chapel and I say, "Okay, here's a hymn." And then this hymn's up there and then I say, "Okay, we're going to read Exodus chapter 12, which is by Moses talking about the Passover." Get out your Bibles. We pause for the reading of Exodus 12. And I even say, here's time to light your ca- go grab the candles and light the candles, and you can give assistance. And then I'll give a little sermon, and then when it's time for the prayers, I'll say, please include in the prayers this, this, this. Head of household can lead the prayers. And so so people have to do it themselves, uh, so that we're just giving kind of a, a guided outline for a home devotion. Do they pass the offering plate? <laughs> That's right. The dad's like, all right, kids. I got to do all this work. I got to get paid for. It. My hope is that people say this is too much work. I might as well just go to church, <laughs> or this is done for me. <laughs> yeah, let me know how that goes. Uh, thank you. Uh, I was thinking of something else about this. Okay, that, just and a, just about a minute here, or less, thirty seconds. The 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 it used to be fifty years ago, seventy years ago, that the culture pressed us towards church. Then it was neutral, and now the culture is driving us away from church. And so the people who are driven to church by culture are going to be pulled away from church by culture, 
And I think we're starting to see that bear its fruit. Ah, very interesting. I hadn't thought about that. I mean, I've thought about, you know, how culture has changed, but but that the culture be pushing us, if, if that's the reason, then... And you're going to follow the, the kind of winds of change there. Very interesting. All right. Well, we have one more segment, so we're going to dive right in to name that theologian. Pastor Wolfman has got some good ones about uh, Holy Week. So that's what's coming up here on Table Talk Radio. I hope they're good. He said they would. We'll see. Table Talk Radio. We love our on-demand listener. So I've kicked up the Wolfmuller One YouTube channel, and I was talking to Daniel, my expert YouTube advisor, about it, who said, Dad, your stuff is really bad. I know, Daniel, I know. But look, I have 4,006 uh, for watch time. And to monetize on YouTube, you got to have 4,000 hours. And I, I look, I said, look, 4,006. And Daniel says, Dad, you have 4,006 minutes, not hours. <laughs> anyway... If you want to see what we're up to over on YouTube, you can visit YouTube, search for Wolfmuller. Wolfmuller One is the channel name. See you there. All right, you want to do a quick run through those commandments, and then we'll we'll hear your theologians. Oh, I forgot even what the article was about. The about? oh, it's going to church. That's the third commandment. Uh, hearing God's word. Second commandment: prayer. Um, eighth commandment, bearing false witness. So that has to do with polling. <laughs> <laughs> and this idea, you know, that the culture has this influence. So people, we call them the Christian and Easter Christians. You, you have to say, okay, why does someone who doesn't really believe, or why does someone just go to church on Christmas and Easter? Like, what's going on in their mind? Maybe they have faith in Jesus, they just couldn't be bothered. Maybe. That's the best construction. Most likely, they were keeping up appearances with their family. This is what you do in the culture and things. Now, now the culture says, you go there to church with those bigots and haters? And now it's actually a good work to stay away from church, hmm. as far as the culture's concerned. And the more that becomes explicit, that Christians are haters, the more it becomes a good work to avoid church. Then we see people... You know, it, with whatever the culture defines good, they want to be good. It's the Judas problem. You know, I mean, we remember when Judas betrayed Jesus, he was tr- trying to do a good work because the Pharisees, the people who established the right and wrong of the culture, were saying Jesus is dangerous for us. Hmm. So, hmm. all right. Anyway. What do you have there? Um, let's see. I'll just read a little bit. Now, what book are you reading from? It's a secret. <laughs> Uh, where do we want to start? I was just reading this anyways. I'm just going to keep reading it, although the section that I'm in is a little bit technical. This, so is, uh, this is show prep for Pastor Wilson. He's like, I'll just grab this book I was reading anyway. I'll that's what I was, that's, what, that's my plan. It's Holy Week. Got a lot of reading to do. You ready? Ready. But this charge of being a seducer of the people also broke down through the disagreement of the two witnesses whom Mosaic law required and who, according to rabbinic ordinance, had to be separately questioned. But the divergence of their testimony does not exactly appear in the differences in the accounts of St. Matthew and St. Mark. If it be deemed necessary to harmonize these two narratives, it would be better to, re- uh, to regard both as relating the testimony of these two witnesses. What St. Mark reported may have been followed by what St. Matthew records, or vice versa, the one being, so to speak, the basis of the other. But all this Jesus preserved uh, the same majestic silence as before. 
nor could the impatience of Caiaphas, who sprang from his seat to confront and, if possible, browbeat his prisoner, extract from him any reply. Hmm. Yeah, so this is a nice commentary on uh, Jesus before Pilate, uh, talking about the necessity of witnesses, and then also uh, putting these two Gospels next to each other. Um, I need more, though. I want to hear a little bit more. All right, let me just skip forward a little bit. The pale gray light had passed into that of early morning when the Sanhedrist once more assembled in the palace of Caiaphas. A comparison with the terms in which they who had formed the gathering of the previous night or described will convey the impression that the number of those present was now increased and that they who had who had now came belonged to the wisest and most influential of the council. It is not unreasonable to suppose that some who would not take part in the deliberations which were virtually uh, judicial murder might, once the resolution was taken, feel in Jewish casuistry absolved from guilt in advising how the informal sentence might best be carried into effect. It was this, and not the question of Christ's guilt, which formed the subject of the deliberations on that early morning. The result of it was to bind Jesus and hand him over as a malefactor to Pilate, with the resolve, if possible, not to frame any definite charge, but, if this became necessary, to lay all the emphasis on the purely political, not the religious aspect, of the claims of Jesus. Hmm. Hmm, hmm, hmm. So this talking about all of the uh, the aspects going into the Sanhedrin and um, the condemnation of Jesus. Uh, very interesting. I have a hunch who this might be, but I kind of want to I want to reserve my guess until the last uh, the last quote here so okay I'll give you one more piece flipping a few pages ahead this man was no rebel no criminal they who brought him were moved by the lowest passions and so he told them as he went out that he found no fault in him that's Pilate found no fault in, in him Jesus uh, then came from the assembled Sanhedrist a perfect hailstorm of accusations as we picture it to ourselves all this while the Christ stood near, perhaps behind Pilate, just within the portals of the Praetorium. And to all this clamor of charges, Jesus made no reply. It was as if the surging of the wild waves broke far beneath against the base of the, rook, of the rock, which untouched reared its head far aloft to the heavens. But as he stood in the calm silence of majesty, Pilate greatly wondered, Did this man not even fear death? Was he so conscious of innocence, so infinitely superior to those around him and against him? Or had he so far conquered death that he would not condescend to their words? And why then had he spoken to him of his kingdom and of that truth? Hmm. Fain would he have withdrawn from it all, not that he was moved for absolute truth or by the personal innocence of the sufferer, but that there was in the Christ which, perhaps for the first time in his life, made him reluctant to be unrighteous and unjust. Hmm. Oh, that's nice. Talking about Pilate. And so when amidst these confused cries, he caught the name Galilee as the scene of Jesus' labors, he gladly seized on it what offered the prospect of devolving his responsibility on another. Jesus was a Galilean and therefore belonged to the jurisdiction of King Herod. Okay. Well, uh, so th there's an interesting um, dynamic here in the life of, in the time of Jesus between the Romans and the Jews. Of course, the uh, the Jews want to be this uh, self-governing people um, through the, the temple and, and you know chief priests and elders, and they can do that to an extent only as far as it's allowed by 
the Romans. So the Romans were the ones who say, look, we will finally dictate to you what you can and cannot do. Um, so the, uh, the death of Jesus is a perfect example of that. You know, you would think, boy, you know, if they're really calling him a blasphemer, they ought to, they should be able just to put him to death themselves, but they weren't allowed to, uh, under the Roman government, uh, to, to, uh, put anyone to death. So they had to, uh, they had to have the Romans do that work for them. And, 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 and Pilate is somewhat unconvinced to say, look, if I don't see that he's done anything wrong, why should I put him to death? And the only thing that the, uh, the, the Romans are afraid of then is an uprising of the people because the Romans were, I think this is true, were outnumbered. I mean, if you think about all the Jews that would come in, particularly at the Passover, if we don't keep the crowds happy, we will have an insurrection in our hands. And so, so there's this kind of interesting dance that's always going back and forth between the Romans and the Jews because the Romans are the rulers here, but they also know if we don't somewhat keep them happy, we're outnumbered. So uh, that's the dynamic. And I think, uh, so I, I'm, I'm starting to doubt my guess. I was thinking that you were reading Edersheim. Edersheim? What, what's his name? Edersheim? Edersheim. Alfred Edersheim, my favorite. Um, but, you know, he, he gives this wonderful you know, background, and uh, the last quote kind of departed from that a little bit, but for lack of a better guess, <laughs> I'm going to say Edersheim. You are right. Hey! <laughs> yeah, the so, Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. What a fantastic book. Yeah. I think that's... I've given this book away more than any other book. Oh, yeah? It's You can get it for free online, by the way, because it was published first in 1899. This is such a treasure. Hmm. Especially for any, I mean, for anybody, but especially anybody doing Bible study. You know, I think. I love this. Uh, well, let me let me look at something. Why don't you talk about something for one second? It is the one, one of the reasons why it's so good is it gives so, so much of this background to help kind of flesh it out. And and you can say, you know, Edersheim says in in my in our mind's eye we picture it thus, and so you get to start to picture how it was. He knows all the details of all these things. He was he grew up Jewish became a Christian, taught at, I think, Oxford or something like that. But he's able to dig into all the rabbinic sources. Um, I, I use it a lot to just for sermon prep to help taste and smell the text. It's really, it's really great. You know, I, I'm happy to report that uh, our emeritus pastor here, Pastor McCoy, has uh, committed this to audio. And the so, whole thing? Yeah. So if you go to our church website, faithrogriver.org, which is amazing, by the way, and wow. then uh, Scolia Audio. Look, and... you're, you're, that picture looks like the picture from the 50% of people. <laughs> this is a COVID shot. Uh, anyway, um, Edersheim. So he has the Life and Times of Messiah on audio and also the Temple, Its Ministry and Service on audio. Whoa. So Click on that. See, and I want to see what is. That's got to be a lot of files. <laughs> that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, feast. Feast your ears out. <laughs> that's a lot of reading. I mean, the book is like... 1,200 pages long. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? So thank you to Pastor McCoy for doing that. So, Wow. And all these others, by the way. I mean, look, this is all this is all stuff. Book of Concord. Yeah, you want the Book of Concord audio? Boom. There it is. <laughs> Whatever you that's want. That's pretty amazing. All right. I'm going to make sure we advertise this in the show notes. So uh, we have... Uh, just a minute left. So why don't we uh, why don't we do an, an extra? You want to do that and do your last yep. your last quote? Okay. Yep. So uh, so so final thoughts on the on Holy Week then um, th that here you see 
uh, the Lord himself orchestrating the death of this of his innocent son. And why would his why would God allow this one who is truly sinless uh, to suffer the death of a of a of a of a criminal of a sinner? And of course, the answer is uh, because we are the sinners who deserve that death. And he did not want that for us. Uh, but more importantly, the wrath for sin uh, he bears on the cross. And that's what we remember uh, this week as uh, he offers up his life for us. And then on the third day uh, is uh, raised from the dead, showing our justification. God and, be praised. All right. Well, thanks for listening to this edition of Table Talk Radio. Spotless conclusion. <laughs> Spotless. That's terrible. Thanks for listening to this edition of Table Talk Radio. Table Talk Radio is not for everyone. Please consult your pastor before listening to Table Talk Radio. Side effects may include nausea, vomiting, headache, heartburn, hair loss, hallucinations, and aversion to incomplete sentences with aquatic imagery, psychosis, coma, death, halitosis, lung cancer, brain tumors, sleep pain, internal bleeding, internal combustion, a sudden craving to smell your backseat, claustrophobia, an uncontrollable urge to fight the Calvinists on Twitter, and falling off your treadmill. For more information, visit tabletalkradio.org. Here you go. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Uh, let's see. Where are we going to go here? Let us now consider these two things, for they are full of consolation, and we can never sufficiently meditate on them or explain them. Besides all this, it is necessary for us not only to behold the works and sufferings of this man, but also most carefully to heed the words proclaimed by him, for these declare the reason of his deeds and suffering and their consequence. Hmm. So I'm talking about the two words that Jesus talks speaks from the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And today you will be with me in paradise. Okay. So did I understand that right? So so that um, so the the words of Jesus in general uh, teach us the theological reasons for that which he's suffering. Yes, and okay. especially those two words on the cross: "Father, forgive them." And today you will be with me in paradise. Oh right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's saying do we do we don't want to just watch Jesus suffer and die. We mm -hmm. want to listen to him suffer yeah. and die. You know, one of the things I always uh, talk about is uh, the role of the, the prophet. Um, and the the prophet's job is to connect the dots. So, you know, you'd, you'd otherwise uh, see these disasters befall you and think, well, what another disaster that happened, you know? So, you know, empires rise and fall, and, and that's just the way history goes. But when we, when we see, just as an example, um, Babylon come and and topple Jerusalem. We know from the prophet or prophets in this case that this comes uh, because of the people's idolatry. That this is actually the action of God. So the the prophet's job is to connect the dots. So this is happening because of this act of God, and that's uh, Jesus in the office of prophet as he suffers on the cross. That this is not just an unfortunate event happening to an innocent guy, but this is happening for the theological reason that God is uh, forgiving us, for we know not what we do, um, which isn't an excuse. I mean, this doesn't release a person of the guilt, by the way. Like, mm -hmm. like uh, I didn't, I didn't know I was speeding. <laughs> um, but, but, right. but, but it's saying that there is still forgiveness for the thing that, uh, that they, they sit in darkness would be the way to think about that. They don't know what they do because they sit in the darkness of their own sin and yet forgive them. Right. Right. That's right. Nice. You want another paragraph? I do. It is of the greatest importance, however, to, dis this is great, to distinguish between the suffering of our Lord Jesus and that of all other men. 
This distinction is momentous, not only because Jesus Christ is eternal God who created heaven and earth and all things, but also because his suffering had a peculiar cause and benefit, and because the benefit or fruit of his suffering is such that it could not have been produced by the suffering of any other man or of an angel or of any creature. He suffered, as you lately heard, not for himself, but for us, that we might be delivered from sin and death. This we also learn from the words he here speaks in our text, which words it behooves every Christian to observe and to entwine in his soul as his most precious treasure and comfort. The words he spoke from the cross, Father, forgive them. Hmm. Good stuff. Uh, yeah, so there's a distinction between the death of Jesus and all other uh, dyings. And um, it kind of goes back to the the, the basic catechism questions. Um, you know, why is it necessary for Jesus to be true God, and why is it necessary for Jesus to be true man? And if he's not one of those, then the death and resurrection of Jesus is, uh, is all in vain. Uh, in other words, he has to be man to fulfill the law for us. He must be God uh, that um, his his sacrifice would be for us our salvation. In other words, uh, you know, no one can die for the sins of another. Uh, I think Ezekiel, is that Ezekiel that says that? Um, anyway, uh, so yes, so this is, know this is, this is great. Uh, I'm having a hard time pinning down who this is though. Uh, so maybe one more quote will give it away. Sure. Um, these words clearly show that he was attending to his true priestly office, even while suspended in the air upon the cross. Hmm and that he was fulfilling the work which brought him to earth, not only with his suffering, in that he sacrificed himself, but also with prayer. Both sacrifice and prayer belong to the office of the priest. Christ tells us that the sacrifice consisted chiefly in his, sanct in his sanctifying himself for our sakes, so that we also might be sanctified through the truth, John 17, or according to John 10, in his laying down his life for the sheep. There are many more passages of this kind, all of which show that his suffering were not to be for himself but for us the zeal with which he here performed this work and offered this sacrifice was such that he even prayed that the father would forgive those who crucified him that he would pardon and not punish their sin he prayed thus that all might know why he was brought to the cross and that they might receive comfort from this mm -hmm. knowledge this prayer therefore should teach us first of all that our dear lord jesus is a priest and that he fulfilled the duties of his priestly office there upon the cross Ah, that's so good. So that's kind of funny. I, I had mentioned the office of prophet, uh, but but here the author, I think, rightly point, points it to the office of uh, priest. So we know that the priest's job uh, was to uh, go and make sacrifice on behalf of the people, and uh, here what we have in Jesus going on behalf of the people to be the sacrifice, not to offer a sacrifice, but to be the sacrifice for the sins of the people. That's great, great stuff. So we so we talk about the threefold office of Christ, prophet, priest, and king, and we've uh, seen examples, I think, of both prophet and priest uh, just in these few readings. Uh, I think this might be Martin Luther. What? <laughs> Did you not hear that part about the Martin Luther? <laughs> Let's see. Oh, look at that. Look at that. House, House Postles, yeah. I printed them out. So, you can get these online, too. House Postles. Volume... Two, volume two, nice. What are the house postals? Uh, do you see all these uh, things there? Can you see them? Those are all sticky the, notes. All, the, all my sticky notes in there. Those are all the jokes that Luther made. Oh, really? I wrote an essay <laughs> at some point on the Luther's use of humor in in preaching. 
I think like three people read it. <laughs> um, house postals. It's interesting. Do you have the church postal and house postal? Uh, the 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 big difference is that the house postal is in the public domain <laughs> <laughs> and shorter generally than the church postal. House postals are shorter. The house postals were um, were more of what Luther preached. The church postals are what Luther prepared as basically they're like extended notes of sermons for pastors. Mm. So, okay. All right. Well, uh, let let someone mark on the calendar the first time I have got both of your Name That Theologians Edersheim correct. and Luther. This is my Holy Week diet now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that, by the way, that sermon was the 11th out of 13 sermons on the Passion. Hmm. So... That's great. So you're and almost done. This, this guy, well, I just kind of picked in the middle. But this guy is, again, this text is available for free as well. I'll put the link to that um, in the show notes on the YouTubes. All right. Nice work. Hey, thank you. I, like I said, I let's mark this such, on the... I shouldn't pick something. Hold on, let's play one more round, shall we? <laughs> great. Wait, no. I want to I want to keep this perfect record. <laughs> I don't want to double or nothing. <laughs> just, just one more short little round. <laughs> okay. All right, you direct me. Uh yeah, down right there. Pick pick from that shelf. <laughs> Good try. <laughs> When Savonarola breathed his last in the marketplace at Florence, God had already chosen his servant who would destroy the tyranny of the Pope. The swan, promised by Huss, appeared. On November 10th, 1483, a son had been born to poor peasants in Eisleben at the foot of the Hartz Mountains. Already on the following day, he was baptized and received the name Martin in honor of the saint to whom this day was sacred. His parents were Hans and Margaret Luther. Uh, I don't know. Some historian that's in the Luther. Gustav Just. Ah. It's a bit of a hero book here, this one. I, that's why I kind of like it. <laughs> Luther the hero. I, I'm, All disappointed. Right, good. I'm disappointed your your library isn't more neatly kept. You have just books laying on top of Luther like, I don't know. <laughs> Are you really that disappointed? Only when it means I miss a, miss a round. <laughs> Ruin my perfect streak. <laughs> All right. All right. Hey, this is good. Thanks. Right on.